Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Okay. Too many announcements because of this virus, huh? That's all right. We'll move on. Well, so as most of you know, um, several of us from All Saints and our sister parishes, Three Streams and Covenant Anglican Churches, we began this year's Lent on pilgrimage in the Holy Land, um, following the footsteps of our Lord. And for us, it really was a time of pilgrimage. Actually, the, um, that hymn we just sang, 40 Days and 40 Nights, kind of became the theme of our, uh, of our, of our deal. And while um, our uh, sister parishes, they didn't quite get the tune right unless I was leading it or, or Steve was leading it, they still loved it. They, they, they thought that was a great, great, great hymn. And uh, we, we, we had the privilege, this is such an aside, I'm so sorry. I'm, one line in, and I'm already going off script. Uh, but at, we, we, we had the opportunity to worship at the uh, Anglican Cathedral in Jerusalem um, a couple of nights because um, it was walking distance from our hotel, and the dean of the cathedral offers evening prayer um, pretty much every night. And usually that means he's doing evening prayer and hoping somebody shows up. So we, we were the crowd um, several, several times. But that, that, that last night we were there, he says, is there, is there a hymn you'd like us to do? Um, uh, and we said, that's the one we're going to do. We're going to do 40 days. And we're like, oh, so you're going through the wilderness, are you? Yes, we are. Yes, we are. Um, quite literally, in some cases, on our pilgrimage. Uh, but this was not my first time in the Holy Land. Um, I had previously visited Israel back in January of 2006 uh, with our late friend Ron Dodds. Uh, most of you know Ron, some of you all do not, um, and we do miss him dearly. Uh, so I went back in 06 with Ron. This year's trip, however, was quite different from that previous trip to the point where it really felt like a brand new visit much of the time. One of the few places that I did end up visiting both times, though, was the site of where Jesus cast out legion from the demoniac who had been living in the caves. And he cast it out to that herd of pigs, and they, and they ran, off the, uh, ran off into the Sea of Galilee. Uh, these days, the sea level is a lot lower, so they, the pigs almost have to jump off a cliff these days. But um, back in those days, it was not, that was not the case. So at, there was, at that site, there are some ruins of a Byzantine-era church. Um, there's ruins of Byzantine churches everywhere in the Holy Land. Um, it's very helpful for archaeology, by the way. Um, but at the ruins of that Byzantine-era church, Father Chris, the rector of Covenant Anglican, he gave us a good lesson about the fight against Satan, which was very timely in Lent. After all, what are we just seeing if Satan on us doth, doth or if Satan on us doth press or... I'm getting the words wrong, but that's what, to those effect. And we do see that a significant part of our Lord's earthly ministry was the driving out of demons from who, those whom they had oppressed. So today's gospel, uh, for the third Sunday in Lent, we see Jesus in the middle of one of those events, in the middle of casting out a demon. So let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 11, verse 14. Uh, Luke eleven fourteen, and that can be found in your prayer book on page one twenty nine. Luke eleven fourteen. Now Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marvelled. But some of them said, "He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons." While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. 
But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided house falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. So I don't know about you, but I've often read this passage and found myself wondering how folks could ever think that Jesus used the power of Satan to cast out demons. Why would the devil cast out devils? It just doesn't really make sense, does it? And this is, of course, a big part of Jesus' point in his response, right? This doesn't make sense. Um, That's why he said a divided kingdom will be laid waste and that divided house will fall. Um, Abraham Lincoln was quoting Jesus, not the other way around, by the way. Uh, uh, (laughs) For many people in Jesus' time, however, including folks who are otherwise devout Jewish people, using Satan's power against demonic forces does fit within their more magical worldview. So we find, for example, in the second, uh, the, the, the extra biblical literature of the second temple period. So we're talking a few hundred years before our Lord to um, just under a hundred years afterwards. We find numerous accounts of Jewish exorcisms, all of which involve some sort of talisman, incantation, or magic ritual. So the essence of this view of magic, whether we're talking sorcery, witchcraft, or, or just general paganism, is that the magician has to know the right secret formula to have manipulative power over the evil spirit. If I know the right thing to do, I got the right magic charm, I got the right words to say, I got the right uh, ritual, then I can make the spirit do what I want. Maybe I need to know his true name, for example, right? This is the, this is the kind of the magic, the magic world view. So in their eyes, what better way to have power over demons than to be, be able to manipulate them by their prince, by Satan? They got to obey their prince so you can manipulate them by their prince, right? So in short, Jesus is being accused of practicing black magic And that's an accusation that could get him executed under the law of Moses, which seems to be part of uh, the accusation there. They're trying to trump up some charges. So Jesus not only points out the lack of common sense in the accusation, but he also turns it right around. He says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? So if Jesus is supposed to be practicing black magic in their eyes, what do his accusers have to say about their own exorcists? You know, they're relying on talismans. They're relying on incantations. They're relying on ritual magic. Jesus' accusers are themselves showing that they're the ones who have idolatrous hearts. And then there's the other aspect of uh, what's going on with his accusers, the other side of the accusers, and those who are seeking a sign from heaven, even as Jesus was already giving them a sign in the healing of the demon-possessed mute man. What better sign do they need, right? St. Cyril of Alexandria points out that this is the same kind of wickedness that led the other folks to accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. St. Cyril is saying we've got two sides of the same coin going on here. This is what St. Cyril writes. 
Being stung by envy, they required seeing him work a sign from heaven. They called out, as it were, and said, Even if you have expelled from a man a bitter and malicious demon, that as yet is no such great matter, nor worthy of admiration. What is done up to now is no proof of divine ability. Eh, we don't care what we saw. That, that, that doesn't count to us. What a terrible display of hardness of heart, right? What, what, a, what a dreadful example of spiritual blindness. And we can certainly look at both of these groups of doubters, the one who think he's empowered by Satan and the other ones for whom no sign is good enough. We can certainly look on these folks and shake our heads in bewilderment and pity. But even as a Christian, we can fall into similar wrongheadedness. How often do we think that we can find just the right prayer or just the right actions to ensure that God will bless us in just the way we want him to? Anybody remember that little book from about 20 years ago, The Prayer of Jabez? Right? Or how about a little bit later, The Secret? Y'all remember that? Or how many Christians follow their horoscopes as if the stars and planets control our personalities and destinies rather than the one who made those stars and planets? Or how often do we beg God for a special sign when we're making a big decision as if God is playing some sort of shell game with us and trying to trick us into taking the wrong choice? Right? It's easy for Christians to fall into the same kind of superstitious behavior and thinking as any other folk. Or maybe, maybe we're not so superstitious. Maybe we've got the other thing going on for us. Maybe we're like the other guys. Perhaps we're so rational that we don't seek God at all, but we figure that we can handle everything perfectly fine on our own. Thank you very much. We figure that we're in control and we don't need to spend time in prayer or in God's word how easy it is for us to trust our own smarts, our own money, our own power. And either way, we're committing the same sins as the folks in this pericope, in this passage. We're trusting in something other than God, and we are, in short, being idolatrous. Jesus, however, sets both them and us straight. So let's look at verse 20. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So St. Cyril, again, he identifies the finger of God in this passage with the Holy Spirit. So he's saying that God himself is the one who is empowering Jesus's mission, even as Jesus is also God. All three persons of the Trinity are at work here, because that's the way it always works, right? It is God himself who is bringing about God's kingdom. Jesus didn't come because of the piety of the first century Jews, right? It's not our piety that brings about God's kingdom either. And on the other hand, we also are not to use the same methods that the world, the flesh, or the devil use to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil and try to make the world a better place. You know, that's, that's, that's the way that uh, our, our, our politicians want us to think about oftentimes. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the human fleshly way. You know, you fight fire with fire. No, that's not the way it works in the kingdom of God. 
Rather, God himself is the one who has conquered the world, the flesh, and the devil by the blessed passion and precious death, by the mighty resurrection and glorious ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it is so essential to become united with Christ in faith and baptism. Christ is not merely one of many religious options. He's the only one who can usher in God's kingdom. And he does continue to do this by the finger of God, by the Holy Spirit today. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us new life in conversion and in baptism. It's the Holy Spirit who quickens the faith, makes it alive within us. It's the Holy Spirit who brings us Christ's body and blood in the Eucharist, even when, like today, we're only receiving the body. He's still bringing us the body and blood in the Eucharist. It's the Holy Spirit who speaks through God's word proclaimed and preached. If um, something that gets said up here is because, uh, get, gets to you, it's not because I'm practicing, because you know, it's because the Holy Spirit's doing something. Christ, by the Holy Spirit, is the stronger man who conquers the strong man of the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's Jesus who has vanquished the unclean spirit. He, he goes on then to give us a warning about what can happen if the unclean spirit is allowed to return. So let's look at verse 24. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from whence I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. In my experience, there's no one more miserable than a former Christian. No matter how good life seems to be on the outside, I've noticed that everybody I know who is, who, who is in the middle of, 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 of backsliding or is a full-out apostate Christian, um, everybody I know in that, in, in that case has this constant edge of anger bitterness, and just general unhappiness. In my estimation, it is better to be a pagan than to be an apostate. It's better to have never come to Christ's table in the first place than to partake and walk away and reject it. Now, of course, we all have little times of backsliding in our life from time to time. And by God's grace, he can and does restore us. We read in article number 16 uh, of Sin After Baptism. This is what we read in article 16. Not every, not every deadly sin willingly committed after baptism is sin against the Holy Ghost and unpardonable. Wherefore, the grant of repentance is not to be denied to such as fall into sin after baptism. After we have received the Holy Ghost, we may depart from grace given and fall into sin and by the grace of God, we may arise again and amend our lives. And therefore, they are to be condemned, which say they can no more sin as long as they live here or deny the place of forgiveness to such as truly repent. So you've got two things that are being spoken against here. One is folks that say, hey, I've been baptized, therefore I can't sin anymore. You know, I'm an ex-sinner. I'm not a sinner anymore. Well, come on now. Let, let's be honest with ourselves, right? On the other hand, we have folks that say, oh, well, if you sinned, you're out. And when you're out, you're out. And um, you, you might as well just go wallow in your misery. Um, no, neither of those things are true. Repentance is a thing. We constantly call to repentance. And the Christian life is one of repentance. 
That's why we have confession and absolution all the time in the liturgy. Well, in St. Matthew's passage of today's gospel reading, uh, Jesus addresses the unpardonable sin against the Holy Spirit, that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So this is a concept that is terrifying for many Christians uh, because they're not quite sure what that unpardonable sin is. What does that really look like? And the real, and the real terrifying corollary is, what is it and have I done it? <laughs> right? If that's you, don't worry, because you wouldn't be asking that question if you had done that. The sin against the Holy Spirit is hardening your heart to the point where you will not listen to his call to repentance anymore. That's what the, that's what the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Because that's the biggest part of the Holy Spirit's ministry, is bringing sinners to repentance. The church always puts out that call to repentance. The Spirit always speaks in the Word and in the sacrament. The danger is a heart that's been hardened to the point where that call to repentance and that voice of the Holy Spirit make no difference at all. That's the danger. And that's the danger of backsliding and falling into sin. The early stages of backsliding look an awful lot like apostasy. Like you really can't tell at the beginning, right? And ultimately nobody can tell but God. That's why our epistle passage today from Ephesians 5, it lays out the difference between following God, walking in love as children of light and in the fruit of the Spirit versus uh, those deeds of darkness that are, that are found in sexual immorality, covetousness, um, foolish speech, idolatry, and impurity. You know, the passage concluded, Awake thou that sleepest and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Those deeds of darkness are opening doors for the unclean spirit to come back with his seven wickeder buddies. So in a similar way, we have um, in, our, in our morning prayer for this Sunday, from, in, our, in our prayer book, you've got that Old Testament reading with a little star next to it, if you've ever looked at the, uh, at the lectionary there. That little star is, is, is the prayer book folks telling you, this is a reading that matches up with our epistle and our gospel from communion for that Sunday. So pay attention to that that reading on Sundays with the star. Today's reading for that was Deuteronomy chapter 6, a passage that's known in Jewish circles as the Shema. Um, They recite the Shema in every service in a similar way to we recite the Creed in every service. And the Shema is where we get the first part of the summary of the law. Here's here's, here's, uh, the the part in question from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you arise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So this passage speaks of the benefits of dwelling in God's word, keeping it at the forefront of our lives. You know, the encouragement is to camp out in the Bible, camp out in the scriptures. When God's word, when God's very words are taking up uh, most of your life's real estate, it's a lot harder for the world, the flesh, and the devil to muscle their way on in, right? When we were in Israel, we saw a, a bunch of folks 
um, taking that last verse from the passage quite literally. Uh, we had the mezuzah boxes on many doors, almost every door in Israel. And then we had um, the Jewish men praying or walking to or from uh, prayer with uh, tefillin boxes, they call it, tied to their heads and to their arms. And all of these boxes, whether it's the mezuzah or the tefillin, they contain a bit of scripture uh, generally taken from this passage. Um, so they are, they are literally binding God's word um, to their hands, between their eyes, and literally writing them on their doorposts, right? Yet without the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit that comes from our union with Jesus the Messiah, these practices amount to little more than those talismans that, that uh, we read about earlier. They're little more than good luck charms. But here's the thing. The same is true for our Lenten devotionals, our fasting, and our other practices if we don't have Jesus as the Messiah, if we're not united to Christ. I've been, uh, in, in, my, uh, in my daily prayer, I ran across a hymn uh, written by St. Gregory the Great, um, and the essence of the hymn is, okay, we're in Lent, and may those outward practices reflect an inward heart, Right? Because without the heart change, those outward practices don't do anything. They're just good luck charms. They're just walking through magic rituals. But when God's word is written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit, these acts of piety do help to transform us into Christ's likeness. They become part of those ordinary means of grace, those regular things we do that God uses to give us his grace. So in our collect today, we pray that God would look upon the hearty desires of his humble servants and stretch forth the right hand of his majesty to be our defense against all our enemies through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So this Lent, may the ministry of word and sacrament give us godly, hearty desires. Let's have those hearty desires. And may we see God's finger, his right hand, his Holy Spirit bring his majestic kingdom upon us. Because indeed, it is only by his might and power that we can be defended against the enemy of our souls. After all, it is our Lord Jesus who is the stronger man, conquering both his and our foes. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven.